Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash HII. In this episode, as part of the G.B. Shaw Back in Town Conference, a paper by Professor Nelson O'Kealig Ritchell of the Massachusetts Maritime Academy. His paper was entitled Shaw, the Poor Law, in 1910, the rocky road to Connolly. 1910 was the first time Bernard Shaw publicly returned to Dublin since emigrating in 1876. He had particularly avoided Dublin on visits to Ireland in 1905, 1906, and 1909. In the latter year, Shaw had even remained outside Dublin as the Abbey Theatre premiered the showing up of Blanco Posnet. His avoidance was the result of an aversion that grew from his memory of Dublin's poverty, which he knew was still prevalent. And Shaw's return in 1910 was a public return to address that very poverty and the reasons for its continuation. Shaw, perhaps the most famous Dubliner in 1910 and its most famous perceived socialist, had accepted an invitation to address the charitable middle-class Irish committee to promote the breakup of the poor law, and did so on 3 October with a lecture titled Poor Law and Destitution in Ireland. The poor law throughout the British Isles went into effect in 1838 with the first workhouses opening in 1840. The total number of inhabitants in Irish workhouses in 1910 was 41,866 and there was little or no evidence that the system was humanely productive in lessening the severest of poverty. Shaw's poor law lecture was part of Beatrice Webb's effort in London to revitalize the Fabian movement by unleashing a crusade against the poor law, which ultimately was a campaign against destitution. The crusade was to argue that individual and community together had a responsibility for a given standard of life for all. The crusade, or campaign, extended from Webb's 1909 minority report, composed from her time on the Royal Commission on the Poor Law, and her opposition to the Commission's majority recommendations, which she did not feel went far enough in combating poverty. She hoped that the movement would harness the energy... uh, Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, Webb was confident that she had found an issue that could win uh, wide support, and she hoped the movement would harness the energy of the young Fabians and look to herself, her husband Sidney Webb, and others of the old Fabian guard to make the initial moves. The crusade was physically launched in London 16 days before Shaw lectured Dublin uh, when Sidney Webb addressed the poor law. James Alexander, in Shaw's Controversial Socialism, intimates that that Shaw joined Webb's crusade due to his friendship with the Webbs and his desire for something revolutionary and practicable. The period, in fact, was becoming revolutionary as suffragettes and others were becoming progressively militant. A crusade on destitution certainly had an attraction for Shaw who would deliver a second lecture on the poor law in Scotland weeks after Dublin. But this was the English context on the poor law um, and destitution, or Shaw's poor law and destitution lecture. The Irish context was quite distinct, and it would have far more revolutionary consequences than Shaw perhaps anticipated. The Irish context for Shaw's 1910 Dublin lecture began to form when an Irish journalist named Frederick Ryan 
who had recently moved back to Dublin from years in London, delivered a number of lectures in 1899 on Shaw, his Fabian essays, lectures, and his early plays to the struggling and minuscule Irish Socialist Republican Party. While in London, Ryan had taken a great interest in Shaw and Shaw's work. But there doesn't seem to be any direct evidence as to whether Shaw and Ryan uh, ever really had a conversation. Um, while in London, Ryan had a, um, uh, so when Ryan shared his interest with the ISRP in Dublin, he may have only addressed a handful of individuals, as the Irish Socialist Republican Party's lectures rarely attracted more than 15 members. But one member who was always present was the party's founder and secretary, James Conley. It was with Conley and the Irish Socialist Republican Party that Shaw's presence among Irish socialists began, bringing further relevance to Declan Kybird's assertion that Shaw's influence among the Irish would be far, far, more, uh, far greater than he ever seemed to realize. Shaw's context among Dublin socialists expanded when Fred Ryan wrote a play, The Laying of the Foundations for the Irish National Theatre Society's first season in 1902. The INTS would open the Abbey Theatre two years later. Ryan's play was heavily based on Shaw's widower's houses, hence inserting Shaw and his perceived socialism into the beginning of the modern Irish theatre movement. On the eve of the Irish Socialist Republican Party's collapse in spring 1903, James Conley arranged for the, for the Irish, Irish National Theatre Society to revive Ryan's uh, play for an ISRP benefit. The financially, Ryan's play was unable to save the party, but it helped Ryan to reassert his perception of Shavian socialism among Dublin socialists, most notably with James Conley. Ryan differed his play from Widower's Houses in that he included a socialist character, which was based on Conley himself. The Conley character in the play's Shavian direction anticipated further roles that Shaw and Conley would play in Irish socialism. Conley had been born and raised by Irish parents amid severe poverty in Edinburgh, and as a young man emigrated to Dublin in 1896 and quickly founded the Irish Socialist Republican Party. When the party collapsed, Conley emigrated to America, where he worked as a union organizer and socialist agitator. He returned to Dublin on 26 July 1910, just two days after Shaw and his wife Charlotte had arrived in Ireland for a six-week holiday. During the interim of Conley's absence from Dublin, Shaw, of course, wrote his great Irish play, John Bull's Other Ireland, which finally successfully played Dublin in 1907, while other Shaw plays from English companies also toured Irish cities. But John Bull's had entered Shaw into a theatrical dialogue of sorts with John Millington Singh, the Abbey Theatre's early genius. Their dialogue leaned toward the left as both portrayed a crass bourgeois greed that had infiltrated rural Ireland, the Ireland conservative nationalists in Dublin obsessively idealized. This dialogue or debate characterized by internationalized and nationalized views kept Shaw's presence in Dublin theater through playwrights who arguably emulated Shaw to various degrees of success, um, Terence McSweeney, John Irvine, Kazmir Markowitz, A.P. Wilson, uh, and Shaw's longtime friend Edward McNulty, uh, to name only a few. Um, Shaw's presence in dialogue in Dublin theatre, even much divorced from Dublin, anticipated the dialogue that later emerged between Shaw and James Conley as they moved within international and eventual national for focuses. Much of this was percolating into what was to become a context 
Shaw entered when he was introduced for his lecture on 3 October 1910. By this time, of course, Shaw enjoyed uh, world fame as a playwright and public intellectual, and while he no doubt still carried some local Dublin luster from the previous year's premiere of the Playboyish, the showing up of Blanco Posnet, over Dublin's, Dublin Castle's objections, the direct context of Shaw's lecture had in the immediate preceding weeks become suddenly dramatic, even volatile. This context was being largely dominated by a debate between the Catholic Church and the growing Irish socialist movement, which was being provocatively stirred by the newly returned James Conley, soon to be Ireland's other renowned socialist. Shaw was on the road to Conley. Months before Connolly's return, the Catholic Church began a crusade of its own to stifle socialism and radical trade unionism in Ireland. This was presented by a blind Jesuit priest, Robert, uh, Father Robert Kane, who delivered a series of Lenten sermons intended to undermine and negate socialism in Dublin. The sermons were published in the nationally circulated Irish Catholic newspaper, which was part of the newspaper holdings of Dublin capitalist William Martin Murphy, a figure who would soon play an important role in employers' efforts to suffocate Dublin trade unionism. And to herald his return to Dublin, James Conley took it upon himself to author a socialist response to Cain's sermons by composing his pamphlets, Labour, Nationality and Religion. The work, with its learned and direct approach, countered every significant point Cain's sermons had asserted against socialism, along with criticising the church for failing the poor in favour of the moneyed classes. The result attracted much attention among Dublin socialists, trade unionists, and even some radically minded of the middle class in Dublin and Britain. The leftist London Daily Herald praised Conley's pamphlet, writing that it represented intelligent Irish Catholic layman thinking. As the pamphlet won some praise, it also provoked controversy and scorn. On 3 August 1910, a Dublin Socialist Speakers Platform meeting that included Conley angrily broke up in reaction to public criticism levelled at a priest. And the church, through another highly educated Jesuit priest, Father McEarlin, published retorts to Conley's pamphlet again in the Irish Catholic Papers, or Irish Catholic Times. Um, actually, it's Catholic Times, sorry, uh, into this contentious atmosphere and publicly perceived socialist Shaw returned to Dublin to address destitution and its manufacture. A question that arises whether, is whether Shaw could have fully appreciated the atmosphere he was entering. Four days before his Dublin lecture, the Daily Herald printed its praise of Conley's pamphlet. If Horace Plunkett's home outside Dublin in Fox Rock, where Shaw and Charlotte were staying, received London papers, Shaw may well have read of Conley's pamphlet before his lecture. To publicise his lecture, Shaw appeared in an interview in Dublin's Freeman's Journal, a home rule newspaper. He remarked that his motto was Ireland for all. Drawing on his feelings for Dublin, Shaw added that the souls of the writers are sick of Dublin and of our stale brags and sentimentality, our heroic talk and our horrible squalor and infant mortality and poverty. He clearly indicated that his lecture was not to be what he considered the usual commentary that Dublin was then accustomed to. Supported by his reputations, London fame, and his perceived socialism in Dublin, Shaw's lecture was exceedingly well attended in the ancient concert rooms where his mother had sung decades earlier with the Amateur Musical Society. 
The Freeman's Journal noted that Shaw's lecture attracted many prominent and respectable middle-class attendees, including the Home Rule MPs John Dillon and Thomas Kettle, along with justices, barristers, medical doctors, many suffragists and churchmen. In fact, the paper noted that Shaw's audience included an exceptionally large number of representatives of the church. Presumably, the church's many representatives were, pre- <clears throat> were present due to the church's crusade against socialism in Ireland, and no doubt the exchanges with the socialist agitator Conley had increased the church's concerns with what Shaw might say to Dubliners. Also included in Shaw's audience, according to the Freeman's Journal, was the leftist journalist Francis Sheehy Skeffington. Sheehy Skeffington, who greatly admired Shaw and who only weeks earlier told a crowd of trade unionists that James Conley was the person to unite socialists and labourers in Dublin, had drafted with Conley a manifesto for the Socialist Party of Ireland in the very building Shaw was now to attack the question of Irish destitution. Yet while Conley had been very aware of Shaw since at least 1899, he was not in Dublin for Shaw's lecture. Instead, the poverty-stricken Conley was lecturing small working-class gatherings in Scotland, trying to scrape together enough money to send for his family still in New York. The Freeman's Journal made no indication if labourers attended Shaw's lecture with its admission price of one to four shillings. But Conley's comrades, who were also Shaw admirers, the trade unionist and socialist William O'Brien and Frederick Ryan, undoubtedly were present. The chair for Shaw's lecture was Alderman Dr. J.C. McWalter, wearing the chain of the Deputy Lord Mayor. He introduced Shaw as the greatest and most distinguished Irishman. After acknowledging acknowledging the presence of Charlotte Shaw, McWalter addressed the topic of Shaw's lecture and noted, Some had an idea that Mr. Shaw's view was that the poor law guardians and officials should be put into a heap, covered with paraffin oil, and set fire to. This was met with audience laughter that turned into sustained applause as Shaw began to stand. One witness recorded that Shaw arose in a dark suit with a short, square-cut, double-breasted coat that gave him the appearance of a hearty yachtsman. Um, And if we had better lights, you would notice that I have my nautical tie on today for for the occasion. (laughs) Um, Shaw's return uh, to Dublin was without his Jaeger suit and was instead reminiscent of Jack Tanner from Man and Superman. Shaw was to speak for over an hour and 20 minutes, and both the Freeman's Journal and Irish Times transcribed Shaw's lecture in the third person. Oddly, the lecture has never been published uh, elsewhere and is not in Dan Lawrence uh, and David Green's The Matter with Ireland. Both newspaper accounts are similar, and both omit a remark a witness recorded of Shaw chastising his audience for having denounced uh, Sings the Playboy of the Western World when it premiered in 1907. When the sustained applause for Shaw following his introduction subsided, he commenced by saying that the very kind reception accorded him was rather embarrassing, as he was not going to be as complimentary to the audience as they had been to him. (laughs) He continued by alluding to the chair's joke that some uh, thinking that Shaw was aiming to burn the poor law officials and guardians of Ireland, Shaw offered that he really wanted to make, take the audience and submit them to the paraffin oil treatment, or any other treatment that would rouse their sense of civic duty. Shaw stated that he could not acquit his respectable audience of the most monstrous crimes when he thought what destitution and what the poor law system was in Ireland at the present. He preferred that they give up their respectable private virtue in favour of civic virtue. 
In Shavian form, Shaw continued to interweave a comedic tone into his very serious arguments and criticisms of his predominantly middle-class audience. He strove to prompt his audience to consider their collective responsibility. He stated that, as a private person, the amount of harm they could do was very small, a few murders, perhaps, or an embezzlement, which could cause a slight amount of inconvenience to the people around them. When the reported laughter quieted, Shaw relayed that he had that very afternoon visited the South Dublin Union workhouse and saw conditions firsthand. He stated that under no conditions should children ever be confined to a workhouse, adding that there were 8,000 children presently in Irish workhouses. The 1910 average overall daily population of children and adults in the South Dublin Union was nearly 4,000, and conditions were horrid as inmates were separated by gender with little consideration for families and herded into quarters, crowded quarters where privacy was unattainable. Shaw continued by arguing that children in workhouses made the institutions more horrible. To the audience, Shaw stated that he did not want to appeal to their instincts of humanity, which might lead them wrong. He did not want to appeal to their sentimentality. He wanted to appeal to their economic sense, their sense of justice. Poverty was a crime, not a crime of the poor, but of the people who allowed them to be poor. Poverty was a crime of society, a preventable crime. Then Shaw turned on the Catholic Church. Unlike Father Cain's sermons, Shaw did not specify the Catholic Church, but the implication was clear, especially given the number of priests present to hear the lecture. Shaw offered a quotation from Christ, whom he identified as a great leader of the human race from 1900 years ago. The poor ye have always with you. There were a great many Christians at the present time. Instead of understanding that this was a reproach, interpreted it as a warning of something inevitable. The poor ye have always with you, as if blasphemy could come out of the words of Christ, or the mouth of Christ. In jabbing at the lack of Christian values among so many Christians in his audience, Shaw suggested that the money spent on maintaining workhouses could instead be spent on putting an end to pauperism. It was a most interesting jab at the Christian audience in tying their failure to subscribe to Christ's teachings on the poor to their economic sense. Without direct evidence, it is impossible to know whether Shaw's jabs against the church were related to the public exchanges between the church and Conley, as Shaw frequently jabbed organized religion throughout his life and career. But we can assert that the high number of church personnel present for Shaw's lecture was to some extent uh, influenced by Conley's public retort. While Conley's message was mostly to the Dublin working class, Shaw's was to, the Dublin, to Dublin's middle class, which perhaps was perceived as more dangerous as it was the middle class, certainly in Shaw's view, that maintained the poverty. Shaw continued by stating that Dublin Corporation, which governed the city, spent thousands of pounds yearly on workhouses to manufacture the poor, and the elected corporation then said it was the pauper's own fault. He wondered if the audience believed in the judgment day, and if so, it would require all of the mercy of heaven to prevent you from going to a place which would not be as bad as the ordinary workhouse. He then charged the audience's workhouse system with spreading diseases, physical and of the soul. Shaw acknowledged that the workhouses separated inmates by skin diseases when present, but cared not in the slightest for soul diseases. The only conclusion he could come to was that they believed the people had skins, but did not believe that people had souls. Next, Shaw criticized charities, 
which were only means for many to make their consciences feel easy. He stated that thousands of pounds were given to charitable societies who set up large offices with a number of gentlemen with liberal salaries. Then Shaw called for the formation of education committees in Ireland to secure the education of all children and remove the taint of, of the term pauper from poor children. Then Shaw turned on the middle-class Gaelic leaguers who were spending so much energy on teaching Gaelic to peasant children but doing nothing to alleviate their economic condition. He asked that while they taught young girls Gaelic, could they admit that clinics should be established to treat the teeth of poverty-stricken children? Here, the chair, Dr. McWalter, interrupted by pointing out that Irish girls, as a rule, had better teeth than English and Scotch girls. <laughs> the Irish Times noted that Shaw reiterated his point for health clinics for poor children. Shaw continued by charging that instead of promoting people to be paupers, the audience should help them to decent lives. He also related disease to poverty and Dublin's dirt, asserting that the abolition of disease in Ireland would simply mean the ruin of the medical profession as it was organized at present. And he remarked that poverty children and physical conditions of his native uh, dirty old town affected all Dubliners. Shaw finished by calling his audience to lead lives that would leave their country better than they found it. Despite his charges against the audience, Shaw was widely applauded. A particular bourgeois witness, a constant Dublin playgoer named Joseph Holloway, recorded that Shaw made his inviting subject extremely interesting and put his hearers into the dock, as it were, before he concluded his remarks, and they all felt condemned criminals by the time he had done with them. Perhaps an anonymous sign for the Irish working class's future was the article adjacent to the second page of the Freeman's Journal's coverage of Shaw's lecture, which was a report on the Dublin Chamber of Commerce's meeting on the recent Vice Regal's Railway Commission. The Commission had recommended government controls on the operations of Irish railways. These recommendations were soundly rejected by the gathered masters of commerce who happened to control Irish railways. Two such commerce masters at the meeting were William Golding and William Martin Murphy, two key figures in the coming transport wars with Dublin and, uh, between Dublin employers and labour, with the second such war coming in 1913, pulling Shaw into action once again on behalf of the Irish poor. While the Freeman's Journal made no commentary on Shaw's 1910 lecture, the more conservative Irish Times did. The paper's comments were hostile in his efforts to undermine Shaw's lecture and message. Mr. Shaw on the poor law system proved almost as great an attraction last night as Mr. Shaw on Ireland, on the instinctive aim of woman, on Napoleon, on woman suffrage, on the housing questions and various other questions has been at other times. The paper suggested that Shaw, in getting himself talked about again, drew a large audience based on a curiosity of seeing him in person. It was no doubt a disadvantage not to be able to flutter onto the woman's platform, or onto the platform in woman's dress, and then commence to disrobe. An incident which helps to popularize his lectures by proxy and press cuttings. But on the other hand, it was an advantage to be able to come forward and say, You now behold the leading jester the subject of innumerable newspaper paragraphs. The lecture was of the same nature at all events, and there were a great many people present whom one would expect to see at the theatre for Mr. Shaw's lecture in dialogue form. The lecture was distinguished or spoilt by the same dogmatising, the same extravagance of simile and illustration that mark his plays. 
Despite the paper's effort to, uh, uh, despite, despite the paper's effort, the bourgeois theatergoer Holloway, noted for his journal, journal on commentary or, or criticisms of the Abbey Theater, recorded that Shaw's speech left everyone feeling he had heard an astoundingly clever man, and all said that they would not have missed it for anything. Shaw said he saw facts and stated them as plainly as he could. I felt as I left the hall. I had been through one of those great exciting events in one's life that come so seldom and stand out so clearly in one's memory. Holloway, who saw many notable events, did not record if he changed his own views on the destitution and poor law in Ireland due to Shaw's lecture. Eleven days following the lecture, a nationalist priest, Father Flanagan, delivered a lecture on, in Dublin on the Irish language movement, in which he alluded to Shaw's lecture. Amid his argument that Gaelic will lead Ireland to her nationality, Father Flanagan stated, Their friend Mr. George Bernard Shaw could not let them alone. Mr. Shaw forgot his joking a little while the other evening and became serious for at least one sentence. And that sentence was that if he had been educated in the Irish language instead of the English language, he would lose his hold upon the world. Well, perhaps some people, and even Mr. Shaw himself, had an exaggerated idea of the extent of their hold upon the world and of the great calamity it would be to the world if that hold was lost. I would tell Mr. Shaw to try and get a hold upon Ireland and never mind the world. Flanagan's inept attempts at humor at Shaw's expense could do nothing but support Shaw's indictment of the Irish language movement and, and, and a priest. Nationality without the enfranchisement of all the Irish was worthless and would change nothing with regard to poverty. A remarkable consequence of Shaw's lecture was that Shaw had become a visible bridge or link between the emerging socialism and trade unionism of the working class to the consciousness of a sample of Dublin's middle class which in 1910 was far out of the reach of a working-class activist like James Conley. Shaw's speech in the wake of Conley's clash with Father Cain and the Catholic Church's hierarchy's efforts to stamp out socialism delivered a hint at, to some middle-class Dubliners of what was happening to the poor surrounding their comfortable neighborhoods. The lecture had raised issues of proletariat suffering to its audience and hinted at the horrors of the workhouses, that while criticizing the audience's prevalent class, for their complicity in maintaining the poor by only promoting charities and Gaelic. And as James Conley knew, and as Fabians had asserted since the 1880s, socialist progress needed middle-class allies. Conley himself noted, we must get that class of people to take an interest in the movement and leave us plebs to do the rough and tumble work. The working class response to Shaw's lecture in 1910 is hard to fully gauge. While formed the previous year, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union did not establish its Irish worker newspaper until 1911. But the Dublin Socialist response to Shaw's lecture, which touched the Dublin proletariat, is found first in a letter written by Frederick Ryan to James Conley four days after Shaw's lecture. <clears throat> Ryan wrote, I, I somehow feel one senses these things in the air. There is the best opening now in Ireland that I remember for making a real forward move and ripping into the whole fabric of moral and intellectual tyranny in the country. There is no doubt one can get an audience now to listen to things that five years ago, or even three or four years ago, would have frightened them. Shaw's lecture, placed together with his perceived reputation in Dublin, inserted him, inadvertently or not, into the Irish Socialist Revolutionary Debate, the Rocky Road to Conley. 
That debate, due to the industrial warfare that broke out in Ireland in 1911, furthered socialism through the syndicalist efforts of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union under James Larkin in Dublin and James Connolly in Belfast. Shaw stepped directly back into the debate in late 1912, as the controversy over U Lane's proposed municipal art gallery was taken up by Larkin and the Transport Union, and Shaw wrote in favour of the gallery in the Union's Irish Worker paper. During the 1913 lockout, when Dublin employers warred against Dublin Labour to break the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union and its sympathising unions, Shaw spoke on a platform in London's Royal Albert Hall on 1 November in a rally for Larkin's release from prison and in support of Dublin workers. It marked the only known meeting of Shaw and James Conley with the consequences of changing Ireland forever. Shaw spoke at the rally immediately after Conley spoke, and Shaw repeated Conley's call for the London audience to vote against the Liberal government in the upcoming election as the government had failed to force Dublin employers into a settlement with workers and imprisoned Labour leaders on questionable charges. This was a, a, a section of Shaw's speech that's not included um, in Lawrence and Green's The Matter with Ireland. Um, there's, a lot of, there's quite a few uh, elements of Shaw's uh, speech um, on November 1, uh, 1913, uh, that's not in the Lawrence and Green's uh, treatment of it, uh, which they took from the Daily Herald. Uh, the Irish Independent had, has a lot more sections uh, from, the, uh, from the speech, but uh, it's sort of set in a very negative um, context, as they were obviously uh, trying to argue against um, uh, Connolly's statement. The, the Irish Independent was owned by William Martin Murphy and very pro-employers. Uh, pro, <laughs> <very> pro <laughs> um, okay, uh, most dramatically, within the context of Edward Carson calling to arm his Ulster volunteers to resist home rule, Shaw in his speech called for Irish workers to arm themselves in order to stop the Dublin Metropolitan Police from its organized baton attacks on hundreds of workers, which echoed Shaw's experience in 1887 London when the London Metropolitan Police attacked laborers during a protest rally in Trafalgar Square. And Shaw uh, stated in his speech, It has been the practice ever since the modern police were established in difficulties with the work working class to let loose the police and tell them to go and do their worst to the people. Now, if you put the policeman on the footing with a, of a mad dog, it can end in only one way, that all respectable men will have to arm themselves. Two weeks later, Larkin was released from prison and Conley addressed workers in Dublin and called for the formation of the Irish Citizen Army. Seemingly, the Londonized Shaw and the Dublinized Conley had found common ground, and Shaw's increased importance to Conley and Irish socialism, while it still had miles to cover, the Irish Citizen Army had been formed, and Shaw, at the critical moment, had legitimatized the arming of Irish labour into Europe's first Red Guard. On his first meeting, the Irish Citizen Army's drill instructor, Captain Jack White, called for the assembled workers' attention and commitment by invoking none other than the perceived socialist and famous Dubliner, Shaw. White related a conversation he had with the Jesuit priest, recalling Father Kane's anti-socialist sermons, and they discussed George Bernard Shaw, to which the priest said he wrote socialism. White then asked him if the democracy of Ireland was not fit for socialistic life, and the priest replied, no. Shaw's importance to the gathered labor militarized recruits testifies to the importance of Shaw's reputation within the emerging militant socialism in Dublin, even among the working class that did not make up any measurable section of the audiences in the commercial Dublin theaters that were almost regularly hosting Shaw's plays. 
when Conley wrote in The Irish Worker weeks later in December 1913, stating that since the Irish Citizen Army had been formed, police attacks against labourers had fallen off, he titled his article Arms and the Man. Conley's labour and socialist colleague William O'Brien years later suggested that the borrowing of Shaw's title was consciously made. When the Great War broke out in 1914, Shaw and Conley emerged on opposing sides of the Irish socialist response to the war. As Shaw called on the Irish to side with Republican France against German militarism, and Conley called on the Irish poor to shun Britain's war. Days following the declarations of war, Conley called on the working classes of Europe to proceed tomorrow to erect barricades all over Europe, to break up bridges and destroy the transport services that war might be abolished to dethrone the vulture classes. Shaw, as if in response, and also within the days of commencing of war, wrote in Common Sense about the war, no doubt the heroic remedy is that both armies should shoot their officers and go home to gather in the harvest and make revolutions in the towns. But this is not a practicable solution. As Europe's working classes mostly flocked to enlist in their respective armies, Shaw called on the Irish to enlist in the British military for democracy, not for British jingoism or patriotic jingoism, and Conley believing that international socialism was collapsing in support of a capitalistic and imperialistic war turned to national revolution with radicalized bourgeois nationalist leaders, which he hoped would inspire socialist revolution throughout Europe. Yet Shaw and Conley again converged when the radical journalist Francis C. E. Skeffington was imprisoned in Dublin for anti-recruiting speeches in 1915. Shaw wrote to Sheehy Skeffington's wife, Hannah, in support of her husband. Conley then published Shaw's letter with added emphasis on Shaw's radical statements in a Liberty Hall pamphlet, with Liberty Hall being the headquarters of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union and the Irish Citizen Army, with Conley now leading both in a militant socialist direction. Um, Shaw's letter to Hannah Sheehy Skeffington was also uh, printed in, uh, in the Dublin uh, Freeman's Journal, uh, but in the, the Liberty Hall pamphlet, uh, Conley uh, took it upon himself to put in capitalization uh, various phrases that he could pull out that he saw as being uh, particularly radical. Um, in the fall of 1915, as the war entrenched itself into its second year, Shaw wrote his second Irish play, O'Flaherty VC, resurrecting his former dialogue with Singh in borrowing language and structure from Singh's plays for his, Shaw's, unique dramatic call for Irish recruitment. Though suspended from its Dublin premiere at the Abbey Theatre, its few rehearsals gave access to its scripts to Abbey actors who were also officers in Conley's Irish Citizen Army, namely Helena Maloney and Sean Conley, uh, no relation to James. As a consequence, O'Flaherty VC provokingly influenced James Conley to write his own play, Under Which Flag, which sought to recruit Dublin labourers, not for the British Army, but for Irish revolution. Due to his familiarity with at least the plot and thematic points of Shaw's play, Conley was able to respond to Shaw's provocation with his play on every point asserted by O'Flaherty VC, uh, much the same way as Conley po uh, countered every point uh, made by Father Kane's anti-socialist uh, sermons back in 1910. Uh, it was the way Conley responded, point by point by point. Uh, Shaw's provocations now fed for Conley, Irish revolt. Using the premiere of his own play at Liberty Hall in March 1916, to launch his Irish Revolution. Set for April, Conley led the Irish Citizen Army into the Easter Rising, but not without first seeking in vain Shaw's help 
in creating uh, a sympathetic response among some in London. The effort was carried forth by Conley's comrade and friend Francis E. Skeffington, who wrote to Shaw asking for help in publicizing in London what became known as the Castle Document. The Dublin rebels were intent on publicizing ahead of their rising the possible British plans for seizing rebel leaders and their arms. In publicizing the possible British plans, the rebels arguably hoped to influence at least the Irish public within Britain. Following the Rising's collapse, Shaw publicly endeavored to spare Conley's life. His letter to London's Daily News, the Easter Week executions, condemned the British executions of Irish rebel leaders that had so far taken place. Shaw knew from press reports that when he wrote his letter that Conley had not yet been executed, and he thoroughly um, anticipated that Conley would. Uh, having sustained a serious leg wound uh, during the fighting, Conley's execution had been delayed. After Conley met his firing squad while propped in a chair, Shaw contributed 50, 50 pounds to a relief fund for Conley's widow. But for the uh, fine details of all this, um, Shaw's foray into Irish socialism and how Dublin radicals um, reacted to his reputation and provocations, um, and I'll, I'll be shameful here and say, you'll have to, re you'll have to uh, consult my recent book, um, Shaw Singh and uh, Conley and Socialist Provocation, um, in the Florida Bernard Shaw series, University Press of Florida. And as the Florida um, Bernard Shaw series will soon have its 19th title, uh, it is perhaps time uh, maybe for an Irish press um, to create a Shaw series. Um, if my book, uh, Peter Gahan's uh, Shaw 30, Shaw and the Irish Literary Tradition, uh, to be celebrated tomorrow evening, uh, and this conference is any indication, um, the Irish Shaw is a rich field uh, for Shaw studies. Thank you.